You wake up this morning and you do whatever you do to get ready for your day. You make some coffee, read the paper, check email, shower, walk the dog, whatever it is. But you prepare to enter your day. Dressed and ready, you go to your door to enter the world anew. And while you may go out the very same door every day of your life, you are really crossing one of two thresholds. One door is labeled hope, and the signposts pointing to that door are labeled trust and joy and generosity and grace. It leads to abundant life. The other door is labeled reality. The door looks very modern, very current. Its signposts include protect, caution, wary, careful, calculating. It's a door labeled earn and strive, and it leads to scarcity. You may be half asleep or already preoccupied by the commerce of your life when you stumble through one door or the other, but every day it's a choice each of us makes. One day, the younger child of a loving home wakes out and looks out on the world and decides that love is not enough. Having gotten what he needs, he now asks for what he wants. He asks for what he covets. And he sets out to take on the real world of earn and strive. Another day, not that long after this first day, this younger child looks out on his world only to discover that all this coveting has led him to no longer know how much is enough. He's found a rough rough world in the land of coveting where all you get is what you get yourself, when he walked through that second door of earn and strive, he fell off a cliff. And the text says no one gave him anything. He walked through that door into the world where giving and receiving were not a way of life, and he almost died. What happened? One of the legendary preachers of the 20th century, Fred Craddock, he was on our All Saints Bulletin last Sunday. He died just this past year. He swears this really happened. Fred was visiting at the home of one of his former students, and after a great dinner, the young parents hustled their kids off to bed, leaving Fred in the living room with the family pet, a large, sleek greyhound. Earlier in the evening, Fred had watched with delight as the dog and the kids rolled on the floor together and played together. That's a full-blown uh, greyhound there, the father of the kids said. He once raced professionally in Florida, then we got him. He's a great dog. We love him. While sitting there with the dog just now, the dog turned to Fred and asked, is this your first time in Connecticut? No, Fred said, I, I went to school here a long time ago. Well, I guess you heard, I just moved up from Miami, the greyhound said. Oh, yeah, really, did you retire? No, no, I didn't retire. Is that what they told you? I didn't retire. I spent 10 years of racing, professional greyhound racing. That means 10 years of running around a track, day after day, week after week, month after month, day after day, all the time, chasing that rabbit. I chased that rabbit for 10 long years, and then one day I caught the rabbit, and the rabbit was fake. They didn't tell me I was chasing a fake rabbit, so that day I quit. <laughs> this younger child of a loving family, 
He thought he was getting reality, but it ended up he had spent a large portion of his life chasing fake. In the nick of time, he rushed back to see if that other door, that door labeled hope with signposts of trust and care and generosity and grace, he rushed back to see if that door was still open. At the same time, the older brother of a loving family woke up and looked out upon his world and made no new discoveries. The world of reality seemed to be working predictably. You can count on love as far as it goes. Care and joy are fine, but have a self-sustaining plan. Hope is good, but have a backup. Toe the line, keep your nose out of trouble. Hope the fortunes tip in your direction. You may not covet, but you dare not trust. The older child of this loving family thought he knew how it all worked. He counted on the world working just this way. But looks can be deceiving. In his book, The Culture of Disbelief, Stephen Carter talks about how when he speaks to civic groups, he, also, he often speaks on the theme, the most dangerous children in America. He tells two stories. The first is about a terrifying day when he and his then five-year-old daughter were caught in the crossfire between rival gangs in Queens. They were momentarily separated in the shooting and he couldn't get to his daughter until the shooting stopped. It was the most horrifying five minutes of his life. When Carter tells this story, his audience, of course, gasped in horror and sympathy. Then Carter tells the day when he was commuting on the train from his home in Stamford, Connecticut to New Haven where he was teaching at Yale. As the train made its various stops, teenagers got on the train on their way to the many private schools that dot that area. At one stop, a group of girls got on and Carter happened to overhear their conversation. They were heatedly discussing which community was more fashionable and exclusive, Westport or Fairfield. One of the girls from Westport named a person of great wealth who she said lived in Westport, but a Fairfield girl countered with someone with even greater wealth who lived in Fairfield. Back and forth the argument raged until one of the Westport girls came up with an announcement she thought was the trump card. She named a world-famous entertainer who she claimed actually lived in Westport. Not true, said one of the Fairfield girls. The entertainer did not live in Westport. He was only visiting a friend there. She knew this for a fact, she said, because she had met that entertainer in her father's store. Hearing this, the Westport girl raised up and said disdainfully, your father has a store? The Fairfield girl realized too late her faux pas. She cringed in shame as the Westport girl drove the knife home. What does he sell there? Hardware? Carter then asked his audience, which of these two groups of youth are more dangerous? And of course, most of the audience says the gang members. Then Carter points out that the gang members, violent as they are, are closed in by their neighborhood. And sadly, many of them, if not most, will either be in jail or dead before long. The girls on that train, on the other hand, 
are attending the best schools in the land. They'll attend the finest universities. They'll go on to important careers where they will make decisions that will affect a great many people. In the long run, the world they see, the values they claim, the choices they make may in fact be more lethal than the gang's bullets. Looks can be deceiving. The older child of the loving family wakes up and looks upon a world that he thinks is set. It's a world without much grace, but also he thinks a world without much risk. He's wrong on both counts. And it turns out he's as lost as his brother. The world you see, the values you assume, the choices you make, the thing you chase makes all the difference in the kind of world in which you live. You and I, we woke up this morning to prepare for our day. Dressed and ready, you walk to your door ready to enter the world anew. And now you choose your door. One door is labeled hope. You can tell you're close to that door because you'll begin seeing signs of trust and joy and generosity and grace. The other way is mislabeled reality. The warning signs are all warnings. Protect, caution, be wary, be careful. It's labeled earn and strive. It's a fake reality in God's creation. Every day, we choose one door or the other door. The parable begins a man who had two sons, and it's not just about a parent who had two children, but about a parent who loved two children, went out to two children, was outrageously generous with two children. Canadian theologian Janet Saskas has written, hope is one of the three theological virtues, but hope seems different than faith or charity. You can dispose yourself more to faith or charity. You can try to be more kind or more devout, but with hope, you're either hopeful or you're not. In contemporary culture, hope is represented even by churches as a psychological mood. Lack faith or charity, and you can pray about that. Lack hope, and they give you antidepressants. Surely this points to what is flawed in this commonplace modern understanding of hope. Christian hope is neither a psychological mood nor an emotional commodity. It's a gift of grace from God. Having received and lived the gift of hope, this loving parent looks out on a world that is not covet or else. It is not abundance or scarcity. It is certainly not scratch and claw. Another commentator observes, since faith fastens on God's benevolence, it yields gratitude, which turns, sponsors, risk-taking service on behalf of others. Grateful people want to give themselves away. Faithful people dare to give themselves away. People tethered to God by faith can let themselves go because they know they're going to get themselves back. So this loving parent wakes up on a day when both his children are so lost. 
And he is determined to end the day in a celebration of joy, the way he always does, living the way he always lives, by risking in service of others, by letting faith set loose his gratitude, by turning his back on the frantic life of coveting, by giving himself away so that in God he gets himself back. By hope's gift, the door we walked through yesterday does not need to be the door we walk through tomorrow. Did you know this is a surprising gift of grace? The door we walk through today does not have to be the door we walk through tomorrow. The life that feels so trapped, so lost, so limited, so stingy today can be set free before sundown. A life of giving, a life of gracious giving and receiving can be ours even if we don't know on our own where to look for that life. God gives us the power to nail shut that lousy door of scratch and claw, of covet or else, of scarcity rules and fear wins out. God nails shut that lousy, lousy door of fake. How do we as a congregation grow into hope? You know, uh, how do we let God nurture us as a community of joy, as beacons of hope to a hungry world? On our best days, we get to claim this true reality. God has bolted shut that lousy door of fake. And that other door, that door of trust and joy and generosity and grace, that door is flung wide open. When we are asked to give, we're asked to do a lot, but we are really asked to invest in hope. We are asked to give to one door and not give to the other door. We are asked to fund the theological imagination that only from God can we receive hope. And having received it, it reshapes all the way we live and how we look on the world so then we go give away that hope to a hungry world. That's our calling. One day about a decade ago, Old Testament professor Walter Brueggemann woke up and looked out upon his world and prepared for his day. Then he walked to his class, a class where he was gonna lead a study in the truths of the Bible in the midst of this pressured and coveting and striving and fearful world. And he opened the class with this prayer. Let us pray. God, on our own, we conclude that there is not enough to go around. We're gonna run short of money, of love, of grades, of publications, of sex, of beer, of members, of years of life. We should seize the day, seize the goods, seize our neighbor's goods, because there is not enough to go around. And in the midst of our perceived deficit, oh God, you come. You come giving bread in the wilderness. You come giving home to exiles. You come giving futures to the shut down. You come giving Easter joy to the dead. You come fleshed in Jesus. And we watch while the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor dance and sing. We watch and we take food we did not grow and life we did not invent and future that is gift and gift and gift. 
it dawns on us late rather than soon that you, O oh God, give food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. By your giving, O oh God, break our cycles of imagined scarcity, override our presumed deficits, quiet our anxieties of lack, transform our perceptual field to see the abundance, mercy upon mercy, blessing upon blessing. Sink your generosity deep into our lives that your muchness may expose our false lack that endlessly receiving we may endlessly give so that the world may be made Easter new without greedy lack but only wonder, without coercive need but only love, without destructive greed but only praise, without aggression and invasiveness, all things Easter new all around us, toward us and by us, all things new. Finish your creation, O oh God, in wonder, love, and praise. Amen.